Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. So I know that some of you uh, enjoy um, an Arnold Palmer, not the golfer, but the drink. It's named after him. Uh, it's, a, it's a blend of half lemonade and half iced tea. I don't see Ethan Darby in here. Yeah, there he is. I know you enjoy good Arnold Palmer. I know others in here probably have enjoyed Neapolitan ice cream. Uh, it is a combination of chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry flavors all together. I was at the grocery store not too long ago, and I noticed a product on the shelf called Mayo Chup. I don't know if you've ever seen this at the store, but apparently it's this mixture of ketchup and mayonnaise put together to form one condiment. Now, this is going to sound like an odd statement, but the book of Daniel in the Bible is kind of like an Arnold Palmer or Neapolitan ice cream or Mayo Chup. It's because Daniel is kind of a curious concoction of things as a book. It is part collection of dramatic and thrilling stories that are relatively easy to follow and understand, so easy that we teach the stories of Daniel to our children at a very young age, and we find inspiration to live with courageous faith from that book as well. But at the same time, Daniel's also part book of strange dreams and visions that's mysterious, and it's difficult to interpret, and it's easy to find ourselves confused. And so both of those things are part of the book of Daniel. At the same time in the book of Daniel, it seems to affirm government authority and power, while at the same time in the same book, it seems to be highly critical of government power and warning of its wickedness. It's all there in Daniel together. And finally, Daniel is actually written originally in two distinct languages. It's part written in Hebrew and part Aramaic. But like an Arnold Palmer or a Neapolitan ice cream and possibly like mayo chup. I don't know. I've never had it. I'm not a big fan of ketchup, but you put all of it together in Daniel, and it all works. And it all works because all of the parts of Daniel's book come together to form a singular objective, and that is to give hope to people who find themselves far from their true home and living in exile in surroundings that are unfavorable, dismissive, and at times hostile to their faith. Let me say that one more time. The book of Daniel forms a singular objective, and that objective is to give hope to people who find themselves living far from their true home and living in exile in surroundings that are potentially hostile, dismissive, and unfavorable to their faith. Now, if you think about that, I would submit to you that as Christians, that's you and that's me. Finding ourselves living in exile in surroundings that can be dismissive, unfavorable, and hostile to our faith. And it's with this in mind that I want to begin a series called Living in Exile, Hope from the Book of Daniel. Starting with an introduction to Daniel this morning, where we just want to note four basic qualities that we find throughout the book. And those four basic qualities are these, that Daniel is a biblical book, Daniel is a historical book, Daniel is a literary book, and Daniel is a theological book. And one passage in the book of Daniel that touches on all of those qualities is found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open it up to Daniel chapter 9, 
I'm going to read just the first four verses. Again, we're not going to treat this passage as we will when we come to Daniel chapter 9, but I want us to see these features of the book as they appear here in these verses. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Uh, you can find our text on page 435 of those Bibles. Again, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 4 this morning. So if you have that in your Bible, I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in the first verse of Daniel chapter 9, God's Word says this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. And then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And we'll end there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. So, an introduction to Daniel. First, Daniel is a biblical book, right? It's in the Bible. That's why we're reading it. That's why we're going to study it. But Daniel is called Daniel for a couple of reasons. One, Daniel is called Daniel because Daniel is the central figure in the first half of the book. He is the central figure in the stories that we read in the first half of the book. With one exception, that's in chapter 3, where Daniel is actually absent from the scene and his three friends take center stage. Daniel is the central figure in the first half of the book. But in addition to that, the book is called Daniel because Daniel is the recipient and the recorder of the dreams and visions that we read about in the second half of the book. If you just go back to chapter 8, actually, and look at these verses, we can see how Daniel is receiving and recording these visions that he receives. In the first verse of chapter 8, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. Then he writes down what that vision is. Again, in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And he continues writing it. He's the recipient and he's the recorder. And the chapter ends with, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. So he's the recipient and the recorder of these visions that he receives. And also when we look at chapter 9, we can see that he is the one who has authored and recorded this prayer. And we see that in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. And then in verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord. Verse 4, I made confession. And so it's called Daniel because he is the main figure who's dealt with in the stories in the book, and he is the author and recipient of these visions we read about in the book as well. Now, as a biblical book, we commonly classify Daniel as one of the major prophets alongside Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We consider him to be a major prophet. But in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament books, it's different than our English ordering, he actually is not found among the prophets. The book of Daniel is found in a section called the writings. And the reason I point that out is because there's something fitting about that. Because Daniel doesn't function in his ministry really as a prophet in the technical sense. Because Daniel is not sent by God to the people with a message. 
We don't read a thus says the Lord in the book of Daniel, where he points out to the people that they've committed some kind of covenant violation. There's not a word to the people that Daniel brings for them to repent of their sins. He's not warning them of impending judgment. He's not even coming to the people to offer them a word of comfort or encouragement that the Lord is about to act to restore and redeem the nation of Israel. That's what we read in the prophets a lot, but we don't read that in Daniel. In fact, Daniel is told on two occasions to seal up the revelations that he receives. So he's not taking them to the people himself. He's called to seal up the revelations. We read this in Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, and again in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. So he doesn't really function like a prophet in the technical kind of way that Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel would function. Rather, Daniel's life is more like that of a wise man. It's more like that of a traditional wise man. And Daniel has much in common with Joseph in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. As much in common with Joseph. I mean, consider that both Daniel and Joseph are the recipient of dreams. They're often given the ability to interpret dreams of others. And they are both men of impeccable integrity, uncompromising integrity. Like Joseph in the book of Genesis, nothing is mentioned in the book of Daniel about his flaws or his shortcomings. Rather, he is set before us as an example of covenant faithfulness and righteousness. He embodies that covenant righteousness and faithfulness. He set before us an example of how to conduct ourselves with wisdom when we find ourselves living in exile in the face of hostile realities and forces that are out of our control. Daniel shows us what that looks like to live that way in the face of realities and forces that are out of our control, but not out of God's control. That's an important feature of how Daniel models this wisdom and covenant faithfulness for us. Because he understands that these forces are outside of his control, but they're not outside of God's control. We're told nothing of Daniel's lineage, and we know very little of his background except what is suggested early in the book of his upper-class status. And we'll get to that early in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We do know that Daniel was taken to Babylon as an exile in the year 605 B.C., so 600 years before the time of Christ, and he remains there, until at least the third year of King Cyrus, which would have been around 536 B.C. So 605 to 536, and I'll do the math there for you very quickly, 69 years. He's in exile for 69 years. So some of these stories we read about in the book of Daniel, we picture in our head that he's a 25 or 30-year-old. Well, later in Daniel, he's actually quite aged. He's probably in his 70s or 80s by that time. But this is actually bringing us into the second point, and that is that Daniel is a historical book. It's intending to put before us history. Note the frequent references to specific years in the book. Now, we don't read years like 605 B.C. or 536 B.C. because they weren't calculating time that way. They calculated time by the number of years that a king was reigning. So we actually saw that in our passage in chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. That's to root this in history. We get these specific historical markers also in the very first verse of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. We get it in chapter 2, verse 1, again in chapter 8, verse 1, and in chapter 10, verse 1. So Daniel clearly intends to be a historical book. But if we step back and look at the historical context of Daniel as a whole, it begins with the exile of Judah and ends with the return of the remnant. That is the broader historical context of the book of Daniel. The exile of Judah to the return of the remnant. And some of you are thinking, well, that's helpful, but I don't really know what that means. 
And so it might be helpful for us to do just a very brief historical overview that helps us understand that context of Daniel historically. So there's a lot to cover here, so just bear with me for about six minutes as we kind of take this um, tour of history. Uh, Some of you probably know that after King Solomon, uh, the nation was divided into two kingdoms, with one in the north and one in the south. You had the northern kingdom called Israel with its capital of Samaria in the north. That's the blue here on this diagram. But you also had a southern kingdom that was called Judah with Jerusalem as its capital, and that is the orange here. And so you have these two kingdoms after the reign of Solomon. And so when you're reading through First and Second Kings, there's these multiple kings that you're reading about. Some are in the north, some are in the south. But one of the things that we have to consider as we move toward the context of the book of Daniel is that the northern kingdom is exiled long before the southern kingdom. And so uh, in Israel, the northern kingdom, the people there were exiled by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. Okay, so 722 years before the time of Christ. The northern kingdom of Israel was exiled, taken out, captured by the Assyrians. 722. Now, you can read about this in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, the fall of Israel. It's recorded there right for us to read about. But something that happens as the kingdom of Judah persists for more than 100 years after that, something that happens that's important for us to understand, is that the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonians in the year 612 B.C. So 110 years later, the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians. Nineveh falls in the year 612, and Nineveh was the Assyrian capital. So what's happening here is that Assyria is no longer the prominent world empire and the greatest threat to the nation of Judah. It is now Babylon who has overthrown the Assyrians. That happens in the year 612. But there's things happening in the southern kingdom of Judah that we have to be aware of because this is where Daniel is going to come from. He's an exile from Judah. So one of the things that kind of leads up to Daniel's exile and some other things that we read about in the book of Daniel is that King Josiah is reigning in Israel and there's some important reforms that happen under Josiah. Good religious moral reforms. Josiah is a righteous king. But Josiah is killed in battle in a confrontation with the Egyptians under Pharaoh Necho in the year 608 B.C., so just four years after Babylon is rising to power. The Egyptians have a conflict with Judah, and King Josiah is killed in battle. Now, following Josiah, his son Jehoahaz reigns in his place, but for only three months. He only reigns for three months because the Egyptians are going to replace Jehoahaz with his brother, Eliakim, who they rename Jehoiakim because he's going to serve as a vassal of Egyptian interests in Palestine or in Judah. Okay, so he's kind of Egypt's puppet now, Jehoiakim, because they've conquered Judah. We can read about this transition of power actually in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. So what happens next though is that the Babylonians come into that territory And they defeat the Egyptians who had just defeated Judah three years earlier. And so the Babylonians defeat the Egyptians. They run them out of Palestine. And that's the first wave of exiles that the Babylonians will take back to Babylon with them. That includes Daniel. Daniel is taken as an exile by the Babylonians in the year 605 when the Egyptians are run out of Judah. Okay, now another few things are going to happen here that's going to help us understand what's happening in the book of Daniel. King Jehoiakim, eventually, after a while, is going to rebel against Babylonian authority. Remember, he was appointed initially by Egyptian authority. 
But then the Egyptians were run out. He's now under Babylonian authority. He eventually resists. He rebels in the year 597 B.C. We can read about this, at least the beginning of this, in 1 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. This leads to the Babylonians laying siege to Jerusalem, and it leads to a second wave of exiles that are taken back to Babylon from Judah. That would include the prophet Ezekiel. So he is exiled eight years after Daniel in the second wave of exiles. Now there's some things that happen here. Jehoiakim is eventually, he dies, he's displaced. And the Babylonians appoint King Zedekiah to be their vassal in Judah. But you can see here that 11 years after King Jehoiakim's rebellion, King Zedekiah, against the counsel of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is prophesying at this time, he says, don't resist the Babylonians, but King Zedekiah doesn't listen. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in the year 586 B.C. So 11 years later, there's another rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, and at this point, he's had enough. So he comes in and he levels Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. It's reduced to rubble. So this is the destruction of the temple in 586, and there's a third wave of exiles now in 586, and it's a huge wave of exiles. And the only ones that are left in the land are the poorest of the poor. So you have all this happening uh, with these exiles taken to Babylon. So Daniel's context is from the beginning of the exile of Judah, first beginning in 605, until the time that that remnant returns, or what we read about in Daniel's prayer, the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, because they're going to remain in exile for a while. That's Daniel's historical context. That doesn't happen until King Cyrus, near 536. But King Cyrus is not a Babylonian. King Cyrus is Persian. So how does he come into the story? Well, so let me wrap up this historical uh, tour here by saying that Babylon eventually is going to fall to the Persians in 539 to King Cyrus. So Babylon now is no longer the preeminent empire in the world. It's the Persians. And one year after that, King Cyrus issues a decree in 538 to allow the Jews who had been taken into exile to go back to their homeland. That's the, that's the return of the remnant in 538. You can read about the return of the Jews in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So all this is in the Bible. It's not just given to us in this concentrated historical lesson form. Now you just have to kind of track a lot of it as we read about it in the Bible. Now, eventually, Persia is going to fall to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. This happens around 334 B.C. But Alexander the Great, you might know, dies an early death. He's only 30 years old when he dies. And so after his death, this Greek empire splinters into all these kinds of factions. It's this period of time, the splintering of Alexander's kingdom from the Greek empire, that is the focus and the concern of the visions and the dreams that we read about in the second part of Daniel. How is all this splintering going to impact the Jews. Okay, and so that's what Daniel's visions are about that time period before the rise of the Roman Empire. Now, just for context, the Romans are going to come on the scene with Julius Caesar taking control in 59 BC. And there's a lot of ways we can date the beginning of the Roman Empire, but it's around that time, so that gets us to the doorstep of the New Testament in the time of Jesus. So that, that's the historical context of Daniel. I want to say one more thing about Daniel as a historical book before moving on, and that's this. The historical accuracy of Daniel is often the target of critics. And the reason it's the target of critics, or at least one of the reasons it's the target of critics, is because of this reference to Darius the Mede that we have in chapter 9, verse 1, and other references to Darius the Mede in the book. And the reason this is a target for critics is because outside of the Bible, historical sources are radio silent about this guy. He's just not referred to at all in extra-biblical sources. Now, there is a Darius the Great who is very well known in history, 
but he is way after Cyrus, and he's not a Mede. So who is it that this Daniel is talking about? So what critics will do is they'll say, the person who wrote all this down is writing way after these events happened, if these events happened at all, right? So they will be skeptical about even the historicity of the occurrence of these events. But if these events even happened, the person who authored is not Daniel, happens way, way after the event. And what happened is the author got confused about who was reigning with it then, and he confuses Darius the Great with somebody that was ruling way before then. Now, one of the advantages for skeptics in dating the authorship of Daniel so late is it allows them to dismiss the remarkable accuracy of the prophecies of the book. Because what they'll say is, if Daniel was written late, he's not actually writing prophecy. They're writing things that have already happened. Because no one could predict so accurately the prophecies that we read about in the book of Daniel. And so that's the skepticism. We should just say this, the identity of Darius the Mede is indeed mysterious. But there are plausible explanations. We'll get to those later as we go through the series, Lord willing. But I would want you to be aware of this last thing. And that is that critics of Daniel's history made the exact same accusations about his ignorance regarding his references to King Belshazzar ruling in Babylon. And we get this in Daniel chapter 5. But they say, well, there's no evidence that there was King Belshazzar ruling in Babylon until, relatively recently, there were some archaeological discoveries that validated that there was a king, Belshazzar, who followed Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and it validated Daniel's historical accuracy. And so we're going to treat Daniel as a reliable, trustworthy, historical book as we approach it, even though there's some questions we might not know about. But Daniel's not just a historical book. It's also a literary book. So that's the third thing I want us to consider about Daniel. First six chapters of Daniel is 12 chapters long, so the first half consists mostly of straightforward narratives. They're stories. Stories about uh, the fiery furnace and about Daniel in the lion's den. Again, stories that we're pretty familiar with. But the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, are characterized by what's called apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic literature has a number of features, but some of those would include strange visions and dreams, the appearance of heavenly messengers who offer explanations for those visions, as well as a heavy reliance on symbolism and symbolic language. Now, these features are prominently displayed in the second half of the book of Daniel. If you're not super familiar with the book of Daniel, particularly the second half, because the first six chapters are easier to read and understand, and you're wondering about apocalyptic literature that you might be more familiar with, just think of the book of Revelation. That is also apocalyptic literature, and it bears these characteristics as well. I should also say that Daniel's literary features are not quite this cleanly delineated along these lines between narrative and apocalyptic because in the first six chapters we also get visions and dreams. We have dreams that need to be interpreted by King Nebuchadnezzar and we get visions of hands that appear that start writing things on walls. That's in the narrative section. At the same time, in the passage that we looked at in Daniel chapter 9, we have most of that chapter consisting not of narrative nor of apocalyptic literature. Most of that prayer, or most of that chapter, is a prayer of confession offered by Daniel on behalf of himself and the people. So there's a variety of different kinds of literature in the book of Daniel. We need to be sensitive to that when we're reading it as well. Now, another unique feature of Daniel that I mentioned already is it's originally written in two different languages. It's part Hebrew and part Aramaic, and this is how that breaks down. Chapter 1 is originally written in Hebrew. Chapters uh, 2 through 7 are originally written in Aramaic, 
which is the official court language of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, which referring to the same people, the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, their court language is Aramaic. And then the book of Daniel jumps back to Hebrew to conclude the book in chapters 8 through 12. Now, it's not entirely clear why there's this exchange of languages in the book of Daniel. There's some theories there, but one of the things I would point out from a literary perspective is that the Aramaic section, only chapters 2 through 7, forms a chiasm or a chiasm. You might think, yeah, I don't know what that is. A chiasm is a literary device that employs what we could call a mirroring technique in order to stress a point. It's, just a, it's a literary device. I'm going to show you how this works in Daniel. And again, this is only the Aramaic section that forms a, a chiasm, chapters 2 through 7. So the way this works with the mirroring technique is you take the two outside chapters of this section. That would be chapter 2, the first one, and chapter 7, the last one. Note how they mirror one another in content. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 both contain a vision of four kingdoms. And as we move toward the middle of this section, they continue to mirror one another. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 both include divine deliverance from royal decrees. In chapter 3, Daniel's three friends are delivered from a decree from Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 6, Daniel himself is delivered from the lions from the decree of Darius. Okay, so they mirror one another that way. And then we get to the middle two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and they both concern divine judgments on Babylonian kings. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is judged. Chapter 5, Belshazzar is judged. Okay, so there's this mirroring. This is, again, very deliberate structuring in order to stress a point. And often, the main point is in the middle. But why would this judgment on Babylonian kings be such an important point for the book of Daniel to make? Well, it's because of this. The judgment on Babylonian kings reminds us there is a greater king who is presiding over and ruling over all the events of the exile and all of history. And that's going to bring us to the fourth thing we want to know about the book of Daniel. Daniel is also a theological book. Like all biblical literature, Daniel is wanting to teach us something about who God is. It's a theological book. It's revealing God to us. And one of the things Daniel is teaching us about is God's greatness and his goodness. We see it even at the beginning of his prayer. Let's listen to that prayer again as it begins in verse 4. This is how Daniel begins the prayer. O Lord, the great and awesome God, that's his greatness. He continues, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's his goodness. The greatness and the goodness of God is a deep concern of the book of Daniel. Not just in that prayer, but all the book throughout the book is stressing the greatness and the goodness of God. And it does this in at least three ways. So one of the ways it does that is reminding us that God controls history. God is great and good as the one who controls history. Even when it looks and feels like everything is out of control, God is reigning. Even when it looks like everything is out of control, God is reigning. History is marching toward its appointed ends. How and when God determines these things and His purposes will stand. His purposes will stand even in the midst of social turmoil, cultural confusion, moral decay, conflict, violence, and exile. God controls history, and his purposes will stand. God controlled history at the time of the exile of his people. God controlled history in the darkness of Good Friday, when it seemed like everything had gone wrong. And God controls history in our present moment. God is controlling history now. 
And we need to stand upon that truth. The second thing we also see is that God rules the nations. Even in the Old Testament, God wasn't just ruling over the affairs of Israel. The extent of his rule included all nations. And the extent of his rule today still includes all nations. God rules the nations. Joe Biden does not run the world. Donald Trump does not run the world. Vladimir Putin does not run the world. The leaders of China do not rule the world. Satan does not rule the world. Our God is the one who lifts kingdoms up and he brings kingdoms down. God is the one who humbled the pride of the Assyrians. He's the one who humbled the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He's the one who brought low the Persian Empire. He's the one who lifted the Greek Empire up in Alexander the Great. He's the one who brought that down at the time of the Roman Empire. He's the one who lifted the Romans and brought them down. And he's the one who lift nations today. And he's the one who brings them down. Now, I have a story to tell you about the Roman Empire. One of um, the emperors in early Rome was uh, named um, Nero. Some of you have heard of Emperor Nero because he's known uh, among Christians as one who put many Christians to death. And it's alleged that on one occasion when Nero was putting a Christian uh, to death in the first century, that one of the Christian martyrs proclaimed to Nero that a day is coming when people will name their children Peter and Paul and their dogs Nero. And so my friend had a dog named Nero. But even if he had named that dog Nero, that person was correct. Because people are naming their children Peter and Paul. We have some of them in our midst. And the reason for that is, it's God's kingdom that is the eternal kingdom. God's kingdom through the church is the one that has survived beyond all of these other kingdoms and will last into eternity. And God's not only bringing earthly kingdoms down, he can bring other people into his everlasting kingdom. One of the things we see in the book of Daniel, amazingly, is these pagan kings in this book making a confession about the greatness and the goodness of Israel's God through Daniel's witness in Babylon. We hear these pagan kings confessing the greatness and the goodness of Israel's God. And that's anticipating a time that's coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Daniel's anticipating that time. And we need to remember ourselves that that time is coming. There will be vindication for God and for his people. And we need to confess the God who reigns. But the third thing is that God delivers his faithful people. We see this in the book of Daniel as well. God delivers his faithful people. Over and over again, Daniel is revealing, us, uh, revealing to us a God who is faithful to his faithful people in their exile. He's protecting them. He protects them from angry kings, from deadly decrees, from fiery furnaces, from the conspiring of their enemies, from hungry lions' mouths, and from wicked rulers. Now, we shouldn't conclude from this that no ill will ever befall God's people in this life or in this world, because we should know better from the witness of Scripture and the witness of history. But what it does mean is that God will protect His faithful people from the enemies who will try to silence their witness. And in the end, God, through His greatness and His goodness, will in fact deliver His faithful people from their exile to bring them in their, into their eternal dwelling to be at home with Him forever in glory. God will bring that about. And we need to hear that truth, and we need to believe that truth, that our God delivers his faithful people. And the reason we need to hear these things is because it's these truths. God controls history, 
that God rules the nations, that God delivers his faithful people, that empowered and enabled Daniel and his friends, and these are the truths that will empower and enable us to be a people living in exile who are driven by hope rather than fear, who are driven by faithfulness rather than compromise, and who are driven to serve those around us and not to be people who respond in antagonism and hatred. These truths allow us to be salt and light rather than adding to the darkness around us. And they enable us at the same time to resist conformity to our own contemporary Babylon of moral confusion, splintering tribalism, and a weakening Christian influence in our culture in the midst of a growing secularism that is becoming increasingly intolerant of biblical truth. That's where we are. If you don't think that's where we are, look and listen. That's where we live, in our own contemporary Babylon. But listen, this is why Daniel's important, and this is how Daniel encourages us. Even in the midst of Babylon, our God reigns. That's what Daniel is going to show us. And it has important implications for how we respond in life. And uh, Christian author A.G. Fernando understands the implications of this when he writes this. He says, we don't need to panic when we see segments of society being overrun by forces hostile to Christianity. Did you hear that, beloved? We don't have to panic. Is there reason to be concerned? Sure. Should we be prayerful? Absolutely. Should we panic in fear? No. And here's why. He says, deeper than the world history we see, there's another history unfolding. God is working out his plan for creation and nothing can thwart it. If we realize this, we wouldn't compromise our principles and accommodate ourselves to the present world, and neither would we use unbiblical methods to combat wrong. Our confidence in God enables us to stick within parameters of Christian belief and practice. And sticking within the parameters of Christian belief and practice in the midst of exile is exactly what Daniel shows us how to do. And so that's why we're going to look at it. We can remember as Christians that we don't belong to the fading kingdoms of this age but we belong to the eternal kingdom of God. And that kingdom is already broken into this world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is our supreme model of covenant faithfulness and righteousness in the midst of exile. Daniel is pointing us to one greater than him. He's pointing us to the model of Jesus. But we always have to remember that Jesus isn't merely a model for us. Jesus underwent his own exile. He underwent his own exile on the cross where he was exiled from the presence of God. He was forsaken by the Father. He was forsaken by the Father so that all those who trust in Him as Savior would not endure the greatest, worst kind of exile, and that is exile from the presence of God, but through faith in Him can be reconciled and receive the promise of an eternal home in His presence. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not a believer, but I want you to know that that promise of home is for you. If you admit your need for a Savior, trust in Jesus as your Savior, and surrender your heart and your life to Him. And together, as we study God's Word and read and work through Daniel together, we can find wisdom and grace for living in exile as faithful citizens of God's kingdom. So I look forward to doing that as time permits. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we do want to confess our faith and ask that you would help our unbelief that you are the one who controls history, you are the one ruling over nations, and you are the one who delivers your faithful people. Help us to believe that, and in believing that, 
May our lives be characterized by an unshakable hope rather than fear. May our lives be characterized by faithfulness without compromise to the Babylon around us. And may our lives be driven to serve those around us rather than responding in antagonism and hate. Because we are the recipients of a great grace. And in knowing that grace, we can show that grace, live out that grace, and proclaim that grace of your greatness and your goodness. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.